You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Experimenty, facts, истина в последней инстанции. Факс вообще не бывает, а уж здесь и подавно. Да, нет, это не клиника. Здесь все кем-то выдумано. Все это чья-то идиотская выдумка. Неужели вы не чувствуете? Оставьте, нельзя! Не трогайте! Да не трогайте же вы! А вам, конечно, до зарезу нужно знать, чья. Это что еще такое? Что толку от ваших знаний? Чья совесть от них заболит? Моя? У меня нет совести. У меня есть только нервы. Стойте, не двигайтесь! Обругает какая-нибудь сволочь рано. Другая сволочь похвалит еще рано. Душу вложишь, сердце свое вложишь, сожрут и душу, и сердце. Мерзость вынешь из души, жрут мерзость. Они же все поголовно грамотные. У них у всех сенсорное голодание. Журналисты, редакторы, критики, бабы какие-то непрерывные. Не надейтесь на летающие тарелки, это было бы слишком интересно. А как же Бермудский треугольник? Вы же не станете спорить, что... Да, ну, спорить. Нет никакого Бермудского треугольника. Пойду я в твою комнату. Не хочу дрянь, которая у меня накопилась, никому на голову выливать. Господи. А где же они что, так здесь и остались? Люди. Не пойду в тебя больше ни с кем. Пойду с тобой. Туда. Хочешь? Куда? Думаешь, мне не о чем будет попросить? Нет. Это нельзя. Почему? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Elric Kane. Hey, thanks for having me back. Also with us is Mr. Joe Yannick. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to finally uh, be on the show. This week we are looking at the 1979 film from director Andrei Tarkovsky, Stalker. Based loosely on the book Roadside Picnic by Boris and Arkady Strugatsky, the film tells the rather simple tale of Stalker, someone kind of like a guide or a tracker who takes writer and professor into the zone, a dangerous place which allegedly holds a room wherein one's greatest desires come true. Much like some of the other films we've covered on the show, this film isn't so much about the destination, but the journey. We'll be relating that journey and including some spoilers on this episode. So if you haven't seen Stalker, I recommend that you turn off the show, go watch it, and come on back when you have. We will still be here. Now, Elric, when was the first time you saw Stalker, and what did you think? 
I saw it about uh, 15, 16 years ago for the first time, and it was on VHS. I remember it came on two tapes. Uh, and I had just started getting, as a film student at the time, so I was just getting into slower movies or slow cinema. I think I'd seen at least like Antonioni's Le Ventura and maybe a couple others, but not a lot. I hadn't seen any other Tarkovsky, so it was the first one. And I, the picture on the cover was the dog and the, and the guy and then near the puddle, and it just kind of captivated me, the idea of a science fiction art house film. And, uh, you know, this will really surprise you, and <laughs> you'll probably feel very differently. And I feel very differently upon a third viewing for the show. But the first time I saw it, it literally felt to me like a thriller. And there, I, and I'm, I've been trying to work out the reason, but I think, and it was definitely not the case the second time I saw the movie, but I think having absolutely no idea of what was about to happen at any moment once they're in the zone changed how I felt about time in a movie. And unlike Hollywood films, like I always feel like for the most part, we're either right with the film or a step in front of the movie. First time seeing this, I had no point of reference. So I had no idea. So if somebody throws a stick and they have to walk somewhere, I'm expecting someone's about to get blown up. You know, something terrible is about to happen. And and that's how I felt through the whole movie. So it kind of had this dread and thriller vibe for a really slow movie, which I thought was impossible to do. Uh, so that so in a way, it really kind of changed. Also, kind of changed the way I started seeing time in movies. The way it could be used to really draw it out uh, and make you feel it purposely, like not not accidentally, just because it was badly paced or something. So so it, it, the second time I saw it, which was maybe a year later, and it was theatrically, it didn't have that same feeling at all because you knew exactly what the next beat was because you'd seen the film. So uh, I think that's a, maybe a one viewing uh, reaction. How about you, Joe? When was the first time you saw it, and what did you think? Actually, I came to Tarkovsky quite late, so I think I only saw it in the last couple of years for the first time, which is a little embarrassing, but I mean, you can't see everything. But since then, I've seen it like five or six times. I guess I made up for it, my uh, lack of seeing it over time with a ton of repeat viewings. But I actually felt very similar to Elric. The first time I watched it, I was like totally engaged and at any moment you you have this feeling like anything could happen like why are they do, like you really don't know why they're doing anything when they're doing it and you're sort of learning as they learn in a weird way and i think that adds to the suspense of it because you know it's a world where all bets are off and um you know we don't actually get a lot of supernatural visually told to us so that we have like visual confirmation that something supernatural could happen, but there's just enough there where you get the sense that it could happen. Uh, and I think that adds a lot to the tension and I just, it really just captivated me. I think there's so much subtext to the film that I want to explore that I haven't totally cracked even with repeated viewings. Don't feel bad that you came to Tarkovsky late because I really still haven't even arrived at his station yet. I mean, I've seen Stalker now. I have tried to watch Solaris probably about three or four times, and I have this really weird thing, and I'm not bragging about this. I am just have this very strange affliction when I'm trying to watch Solaris. It puts me to sleep, like an unnatural way of putting me to sleep not like i've been up all day and i'm putting it on and i'm gonna watch it and yes it's slow moving but i mean this thing has a weird power over me like i can just put it on especially that scene when they're driving through the tunnels and i'm just i'm out like a light you know if i have trouble sleeping at night i can put on solaris and it'll just put me right under stalker i did not have that problem with i was on the edge of my seat 
throughout so much of this film, much like you guys, it does feel like a thriller and it almost feels like a, like a heist film. You know, the way that we meet up with our three characters at the beginning with stalker writer and professor and this whole, like, no, 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 don't tell me your name. You know, it was totally reminding me of like reservoir <laughs> dogs. It's just like, no, 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 you're writer, you're professor. Oh, that's our train. We got to leave. And them going through the zone and everything. And yeah, it's just like, what's going to happen? And the way that it is shot, there's so much of, I think Elric, you said that whole thing of like, you don't know what the next step is going to be. Well, the way that we're shooting things either behind someone's head or at their face as they're walking towards us, we have no idea what the surroundings really are or what that next step could be or what our characters are necessarily looking at because we're looking at them or we're looking at the back of their heads. We're not necessarily seeing what they see. So I can really see, you know, both of you guys talked about how this was like a thriller, a three hour some thriller, but <laughs> I read that term time and again as I was reading about Stalker and it really does hold true. It does feel like they're is this tension that is going to hold you in its thrall, whether something happens or not. In regards to your Solaris sleep aid, I would say that uh, there's some directors out there who would roll in their graves if they knew how we watched movies now. And I think he's definitely one of those guys who was not thinking that we would be watching uh, films on our laptops or home TVs. You know, these films were just so purposely crafted for the cinema and i think part of it was there's all these quotes about how he kind of wants to punish <laughs> the audience with a sense of time and making them forcing them to feel time and a lot of repetition so even stalker you know some of the sequences are there to literally lull you into that dream state that you fell into a solaris so it's like a purposeful thing on his part and yet i can totally see it if i was at home watching that how much harder that would be to watch so if you ever get a chance to go to tarkovsky thon uh you should probably take it you know on the big screen I would love to see his work on the big screen. I would think that would be amazing. There are so many directors where I've just kind of refused to see their work because I can't see it on the big screen. And I've talked about that on episodes that we've done about Fellini and Godard and just some other filmmakers where it's just like, lock me in a theater. We talked about this on the Celine and Julie Go Boating episode where mm-hmm. I went to see that at an art house and I'm there and I'm stuck in the middle of a row and I didn't feel trapped, but I might have felt that way if I was sitting at home on my couch trying to watch this three-hour and some film. You know, I, I felt good about it watching Stalker at home, but I didn't get that same feeling with Solaris. But yes, please put me in a movie theater and show this film to me. Show me Mirror. Show me Nostalgia. Show me you know any of Tarkovsky's other work, because I think that I would have a much deeper appreciation for it if I was in that theatrical experience. I can't even imagine, um, I have yet to see this on 35 millimeter, but I can't imagine it on 35 millimeter and just how beautiful it would be. I mean, this is a stunning film. And the first time I saw it even was just like on a mediocre DVD. It wasn't a great DVD. And then now the first actually couple of times I, I saw it was that mediocre DVD. And then now I watched, um, what looks to be like a 720 uh, cut. I'm still, I can't remember. Did artificial, I put those Blu-rays out yet or no. I don't know if they have, but the what I watched it on this time was um, Filmstruck, and what I what I imagine is going to be the Criterion transfer for Blu-ray. What, okay. what they're streaming, but they haven't put out on Blu-ray yet because I think the rights are still being negotiated. This has been the one that's taken the longest of his rights to finally get a release. Yeah, but even the difference between that crappy DVD and this this presumably at least 720 rip that I saw was stunning, and I saw so many more details. And it, it just I think seeing this on a big screen would just be like 
sort of a religious experience. I bought this on the Mozfilm uh, DVD, and it was funny because I watched it that way, and then I somewhere online I managed to find a, a version of it that is like the Mozfilm restored version, and just watching it on my laptop was so much better quality than what I'd seen on my television from the DVD. I was like, okay, yeah, this film really does look so much better in this other presentation. So I can't even imagine what it would be like to see theatrically. I kind of started theatrically. It was kind of like it was on 16 millimeter and it was at a university in New Zealand. So it wasn't, you know, probably as glorious as it could have been, but it was still, you know, still looked better than probably whatever we have been watching these last few years. I remember the VHS tape, not the one that you were talking about, Elric, but I remember the VHS that was at Blockbuster Video, also a two VHS set. And it always threw me because the cover for the VHS was so not what the movie was. It's like maybe the stalker's face and it's tinted green. I, I call it the lawnmower man cover. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It just <laughs> it is looks so exactly deceptive. Yes. Yeah. That's funny. I, I, the only one I have of his films I have seen theatrically, and I would definitely recommend if with this one more than anything, is The Mirror, the film he made right before it. And there was a joke somebody had said after I walked out of the theater, and, it's, and it kind of has no – the sequence of it is all over the place. It's back and forth through memory, present, past. And I remember the somebody said that the projectionist had once uh, projected it all out of order, one screening, and no one could tell the difference. And it was it – was, the film didn't lose any of its power, but I have to say that's probably the most – powerful piece of filmmaking i've ever seen by anyone and in a theater and it was so personal it was like a film that you almost can't decode because there's so much there about his own existence so it still is a lot easier place to start the cover that you referenced is that the one with the, the crown of thorns it's like almost looks like a like a creepy like horror film it does uh, yeah yeah and it took me forever to figure out that that was a crown of thorns. I didn't even really kind of realize it until I was seeing stills from the film later on of writer with the crown of thorns. And I was like, oh, that's what it was. It almost looked like, I don't know, electricity or something or like dark <laughs> clouds over this guy's head. And I was like, all right. But a friend of mine had seen Stalker years ago. I mean, probably 20 years ago and was telling me about it. He had caught it late night on cable and was saying that. It was a science fiction film that really had no science fiction to it. You know, there aren't laser beams in this film. There aren't, you know, stormtroopers or anything like that. And it's funny coming, what, two years after Star Wars, this is the opposite of so many of the science fiction films that were just out there to copy Star Wars. This isn't even Alien. I mean, it does have kind of the mood of Alien somewhat, that that whole sense of dread that we were talking about, but there's no creature hunting them down. There's just maybe the idea that there's a creature. Maybe there's the idea that something is, is bad, and that's almost worse, because it's almost like this existential dread that we're facing in this film more than uh, this slobbering H.R. Giger creation, you know? And it, it, it was just amazing Amazing that they that this is a science fiction film without really any of this science fiction. I mean, one of the most terrifying moments of the film for me is when they go into a room and there are all these mounds of dirt. And it almost reminds me of like, a, I don't know, an IMP installation or something. You're just like, what is going on in this room? I don't understand what's happening. And then when a bird shows up, it's just like, oh, but holy shit, what's happening now? 
<laughs> and it's like this is this is the level and yes i've been lulled into this film that this room this moment can just take me by surprise and fill me with all this angst that you know it, it was so much more effective than you know oh my god the 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 princess is going to fall out of the ship or something it's just like it's such a masterful director to be able to create that feeling inside of me and i yeah i think some of it is the length of it i mean just just to make me used to how long this is going on i mean i read in uh, jeff dyer's book we'll talk about jeff a little bit later but i read in his book that the whole movie is what 144 shots or something for a three-hour film i mean each shot averages about a minute and a half and that's just unheard of when you have just so few shots that last so long yeah it really forces you into their perspective to experience it the way they're experiencing time. But I would say uh, you're talking about science fiction, it not being science fiction. I know a lot of people would like, if, if there is a wing of science fiction that reminds me of a little bit, even though they're a little more actiony, which is kind of like dystopian films like Soylent Green and Omega Man and w- films that are more about the broken landscape that's been left behind. And then the character is just doing something within that landscape. I mean, they go to a slightly bigger places by the end, those films, but still not a lot happens in them for the most part till, till their kind of conclusion. So it, that's, that's the vibe as in terms of sci-fi, that's all it really reminds me of uh, on that level. And I was going to build off what you were saying as well and say that like this film feels very much in line with like, I mean, I would love, this would be a, a very difficult like three series film to watch in like a day, but it'd be sort of amazing to watch stalker Alexi Germans uh, only or hard to be a God. And then on the silver globe by Zulowski in one mm. day, because I think all three films share a very, they share something, even though they're they're all different in their own ways too. But um, and then obviously, you know, hard to be a god and stalker being based on novels by the same writers. And I think that would make an interesting triple feature. You'd be hallucinating by the end. It'd be great. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> if I survive. <laughs> then you go home and the road is on, so you end up watching that, and you just slit your wrists at the end of the day. <laughs> or just the news. We're really brought into this world so early on i mean one of the earliest shots in the film it might even be the first shot but i don't think it is but is this crane shot or tracking shot over this bed and going across the faces of the people that are in this bed and we have stalker's wife his daughter monkey and then stalker and the way that the camera just floats over them as there's a train outside and the train is so close that it's rumbling the entire house. It's almost like, you know, Elwood Blues' apartment and just going crazy and, and the, there's stuff on a table and it's shaking and just the camera is so calm though, just moving across. And then as soon as it's done moving one way, it shifts and comes back the other way. And this scene, this shot takes forever. But that is the moment where we are really kind of lulled into what the pace of this film is going to be. And after that, I was just like, okay, I know what I'm in for now. So I thought it was a really good introduction for me. And not only is it a long shot, but there's color to it, but it's been completely bleached out. You know, it kind of reminds me of taking a a black t-shirt and putting some bleach on it. You know, it's not white it's kind of this reddish tone to it it was once it almost looks like it was once black and white but then some mud kind of seeped into it right like a monochrome yeah it definitely does have that feeling very dilapidated like a very deadened feel to it all to have this immediate conflict between stalker and his wife 
and her getting up in the morning and just accusing him. He's trying to be quiet, though not that overly successfully. And just her, why'd you take my watch? And just like immediately she's on him and she's a force to be reckoned with, you know, and, and she. <laughs> Her uh, interactions with him are pretty amazing, especially after he leaves and she experiences almost this like, I don't know, epileptic fit or something on the floor of the, the, the kitchen, just throwing herself around and crying. And I'm just like, what the hell am I watching right now? It's hard to tell if that's like supposed to be sexual or not to her little fit. It feels very orgasmic. Yeah, she definitely has some hard nipples during that uh, that part. <laughs> Party hats are on. She's a really interesting character because the this is she has these two bookends, you know, one here where he walks uh, off uh, off screen and she continues looking right down the barrel of the lens, uh, to, you know, right at us and kind of making these accusations at him. And then at the end of the movie, it's connected with a very similar scene, but even more purposely breaking that uh, the fourth wall, which is it, it's unique. It's, it's one of the few parts of the movie that I don't fully understand the intent of but it, it's effective to kind of rattle you but she's kind of a romantic figure surprisingly you know it's, she really feels deeply for this guy so you get that from the start you, she's mad at him but feels a lot for him and I think that that's one of the only kind of emotional things that happen in the movie because once you're at the guys it's a very you know it's just this very straight line from there on emotionally I think some people of course accuse the film of being a little like misogynistic in the way that the wife is treated, but I actually kind of think the opposite. I think the wife is the only character that actually um, like the wife gets the actual scene, like the scene of the film. Like maybe it's not the best scene in the film, but she is the only one that's able to like sort of address the viewers directly and has like seemingly the most insight into like everyone that she meets. So there's this like power that the the wife character has that none of the other characters have over their lives. And I think that actually the strongest character in the film, despite seeing her less, might be the wife. Well, she definitely has control of the camera at the end of the film. And I would say that that puts her into a position of power. And between her and Monkey, who kind of she ends the film, I mean, I would say the two women in that instance are very powerful. Though there's the... I think there's only really one other woman that we see in the entire film who's this kind of arm candy for writer, and he's trying to impress her, but she's not really that impressed when we move into the next scene where we've got her kind of chatting her up, and it seems almost like they've been spending a little bit of time together. He's been telling her about the zone and about Stalker, and Stalker, when he comes in, is just having none of it. Yeah, I, I, I do love that entry into those characters. I mean, it, it's just setting up the dynamics of who these people are with these kind of shades or stereotypes that are a great starting point, and then we kind of get to go a little below. I mean, because, you know, Stalker seems like the idiot, you know, when we meet him, and he and we, we kind of view him as a dim character, but he changes dramatically, you know, once he gets to uh, the zone. The woman with the writer, yeah, I guess that could be the most, like, misogynistic uh, portrayal in the film, but I think it's also just a, a type that they're setting up and i think it's more about the writer than her she's probably just foil to set him up for the kind of lifestyle he leads and there's also a great visual joke there when she pulls off in that really nice car and he still has his hat on the car and he just kind of like <laughs> makes that awkward reach like oh i could oh no i can't get my hat back and <laughs> that's it 
know, I'm done for the day with this. And yeah, he's completely three sheets to the wind. And even when they get to the bar where they end up meeting the professor, like I said, this is kind of like the heist kind of coming together. When they come together at the bar, you know, the stalker is just like, you need to sober up. You know, we're not going to be drinking. He's like, oh, yeah, no, no drinks. So he goes up and orders beer because that's not, you know, (laughs) it's not really drinking if it's just (laughs) beer, right? People have commented on Stalker because when when he starts to speak in the film, he talks about how the whole world is a prison, and he has just gotten out of prison, or so it seems, and he's got this prisoner's haircut. You know, his hair is really short, you know, to prevent uh, lice or any sort of infection like that, and uh, parasites, and. I can definitely see where people are coming from when it comes to that. As far as like people have compared the zone to almost like the opposite of a gulag, like rather than trying to break into prison, they're trying to break into freedom because the zone seems, well, as we're going to get to the zone is when the color comes back. The zone is where you don't necessarily have freedom of movement, but that is where nature lives because this world that we're seeing as we're watching them tromp through the mud and the muck and the mire and just in this kind of monochromatic world, it is just garbage. It just looks like the worst parts of Detroit. It is really bad for them. And even when they're in this bar and the way that the camera is shooting them kind of far away and then kind of creeping in on them. I mean, this bar, it's got a bar and it's got a table and that's it. Good luck. Have fun tonight, boys. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty bleak starting point. I mean, it really makes you want to escape yourself. Uh, You know, I don't know. I don't know what day to day life under uh, communism feels like, but I would have to assume that Tarkovsky always seems like he's being somewhat subversive, uh, even the way he got a film like this funded or made. You know, a lot of it, he would have to lie or exaggerate certain parts of it, probably with no intention of actually shooting it that way. But it wouldn't surprise me if this is, you know, this bleakness is, you know, a portrait of what it's like to live, you know, in a country like that, uh, you know, even if it's an exaggerated viewpoint. Ironically, though, I believe Tarkovsky has a quote where he, where he talks about how the only time he really felt free to make the films that he wanted to make or the only way he was able to make the films he wanted to make was in this was under Soviet ruling Russia because he was able to get his films funded. There was funding in place for his his films, which I find is I find to be a fascinating thing that and honestly, I think it's actually interesting that a lot of my favorite, most subversive films have been made under Soviet-controlled uh, countries. I actually think that makes total sense, but I think within that, the way he gets the funding is like it makes the script sound a little more exciting, a little bit more like it is a thriller, or it is a science fiction film, and it's not until he shot the movies <laughs> and then kind of started seeing rushes that they started realizing what they were dealing with. And and I, you know, not surprisingly, this is the last thing he ever got to make in his Russia. His diaries, which I had read like ten years ago, is one of the best reads of of any kind of filmmaker uh, book I've ever read because it really shows a guy in love with Russia and love with his homeland but felt like he could just never go back to that place and he felt completely ostracized and in his later career even though he still made movies he just felt like somebody who'd been kicked out of home probably imagine a bit like Zulowski felt about um, Poland yeah I'll definitely talk about uh, Roadside Picnic the book that this was loosely based on but in there they made such a point that the events taking place and the whole idea of the zone and everything, that it is definitely not Russia, that it is the United States. They don't necessarily say where in the United States, but it is definitely set in the U.S. And it is 
kind of mm, supposed to be a uh, critique of capitalism and bourgeois society. So this whole idea of going into the zone in order to get artifacts and bringing them out and selling them, it's the, the Strugatskys were saying, oh, no, 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 see, we're not putting down Russia at all. We're talking about, you know, black market society and, and how bad it is in America. Whereas with this one, I mean, you can't really think it's America because obviously they're speaking Russia. I mean, it's, it was filmed in what Estonia, I believe, Mm -hmm. but yeah, this is clearly giving me the biggest Russian vibe that I possibly could. Yeah, especially the characters. I mean, like we we didn't we're just starting to kind of describe who they were. But the writer to me is just the most European of writers. He, I, I feel like, I mean, because it's Russian, it could be based on somebody like Nabokov. But uh, I was always a big fan of the Czech writer uh, Milan Kundera, and everything about this character screams of Kundera, who wrote Unbearable Lightness of Being, and and is basically a a, a writer who lives deliciously, if you would. You know, <laughs> he yeah. indulges in all the vices. But on this, and is popular, but underneath that is secretly like yearning for meaning, and I can't find it. And, I, and it's funny. I I would love to know exactly if that was modeled off e- either of those types of writers, but uh, it's just so European. That's where I, I can tell this couldn't be an American uh, film in this version of it. When we look at our triptych here of writer professor and stalker i'm still trying to kind of get my head around what each one of those kind of represents you were talking about the writer and how he kind of represents the good life he's searching for fame he wants more adulation from the crowd kind of thing he says that he's he can't find any sort of inspiration so he wants this trip to the zone to be uh his inspiration he's he seems he seems like a tourist you know like oh yeah i'll go here and it'll you know recharge my batteries and then uh, i'll be able to come up with the next great russian novel professor has his own reason for wanting to go to the zone which we'll discuss later on but of course you can say okay professor he represents reason and logic and all of these things and then stalker is is put into an interesting place because to your point elric he seems dim when we begin but the more we go on the more he seems almost like a holy man making a, a pilgrimage you know, to this place for him that is so sacred, but it's so sacred. He can't even make the whole journey. You know, it's like you can, it's, he's like the holder of the keys for the kingdom, but he can't go into that final room. And uh, that I find very interesting that he has to deny himself this last bit to almost remain in this ascetic lifestyle. Like a suffering monk or something. And I definitely want to get to that point a lot more. Like, I want to talk about that, like the idea of him not going in, because I think it's really fascinating. But as far as the three characters go, like, I always just read it as, like, science, religion, and art, which are, like, I would say, like, three of the guiding ideologies that sort of rule, like, rule people's, like, the way people identify with the world, maybe. is like, there's people who are art-minded, people who are religious-minded, and people who are science-minded. And, like, not that there can't be borders between them but it seemed like these characters were really abstracts of these like great ideas on how to understand um how how we make sense of the world around us they don't get along most of the time they do not get along (laughs) 
Yeah, and I, and also Tarkovsky, from everything you read about him, is kind of a a weird mixture of all three of those things. He, mm-hmm. He's really interested in all three, and and maybe you know by bifurcating the self or something, it causes a problem with them. I don't I don't know. I mean, there's also a really obvious, even though I'm I'm just not an expert enough in religion to guess, but that holy trinity idea. Uh, I kept thinking at the end, oh, what I need to read more about that to see if there's something happening with these three characters. And what he's trying to get at, because that's one of the hard things about his films. If you're not steeped enough, I think, in um, you know religion, uh, besides the basics, you might be missing something. And the whole film at large is obsessed with this idea of like this of the of like uh, a triptych of some sort. Because I mean, the writer can't stop talking about like the triangle A prime, B prime, C prime, and like the characters in a, in a sense create that. And it's sort of so. I think I think that yeah. I mean, I don't think the whole I think the Holy Trinity is definitely part of that. I I agree. I think I'm in a similar place with you, Eric. I know such a small amount about religion that I often feel like I can see that there's clearly a religious there's religious symbolism in something, but I don't know enough to be like, Oh, that's clearly an allusion to this in the Bible or this scripture or something. Of course we can look and see, Oh, a crown of thorns. Okay. I get that. But even when, you know, the, the is it uh, monkey? I think is reading book of revelation at the end. And there's a couple quotes here and there. I think there's uh uh, at least one of the gospels that's being quoted uh, in the middle part of the film, kind of during that, that break that they take during the uh, the journey in the zone. So yeah, there's hints here and there, but nothing firm enough that I can really put my hooks into it. Though I will say, you know, as an, uh, a devout atheist, but someone who is very interested in Christianity and the Christian myth, I was still, it just went right over my head when it came to trying to, to add all these things together. A prime plus B, B prime and C prime did not necessarily add up for me. It's probably why it still works as a thriller for us. You know, we still are dragged into the story without getting bogged down with the symbolism. I think some of his other films get maybe a little heavier with that kind of thing. I would say the most action-oriented part of the film is what we experience next when they leave the bar and they're in this, uh, I think it's a Land Rover, and kind of (laughs) avoiding the one lone cop, or at least I think it's the same cop that they're trying to avoid over and over again, who's on this motorcycle and them kind of creeping around um, in their vehicle, you know, the vehicle is creeping around or they'll get out and they'll look around corners and stuff and just trying to avoid this guy so they can eventually when a train is coming through and one guy opens up a gate, they can kind of follow the train through. And it's really not as slick as I thought it was going to be because they are definitely noticed they're being shot at. They're being shot at when they get farther into the zone when I would think they would be out of range, but there's still bullets kind of <laughs> coming through the air at these guys. But <laughs> that that's, that's the most, um, I can't say that's the most tense part, but that's the most action oriented scene is as they're, you know, trying to break into the zone. I guess that sets the stakes and maybe this is actually, I hadn't even thought about that, but maybe that's why we feel the rest of it from there on is a bit like a thriller that first viewing, because if they are willing to be shot at something inside could be that much worse that could happen to them. You know, if it's worth that risk, maybe, you know, who knows what, what could possibly be in the zone. There's something so absurd about the whole thing, too, I think. Like, in, in this, this actually goes throughout the entire film. There's like, there's a humorous element to what they're doing, and I don't think it's unintentional. Like, the wing nut, like, uh, the things they throw, like the nuts, um, and just like the, the sort of like, um, I guess like, 
lack of us knowing how, how he knows for sure where to throw that and just like sort of the some of the physicality to them getting through this area to finally get into the zone it all felt very very funny to me i don't i don't know why i don't know if anyone else felt that but i, no, I, I think it's get, yeah science fiction waiting for godot <laughs> that's what it does feel a bit beckettish in that way which is kind of amusing but and i'm sure tarkovsky is probably you know really into those kind of references yeah there are moments where i laughed out loud i mean that the hat thing that i mentioned obviously is one of those but yeah i can definitely sur- see this absurdism coming through time and again and especially yeah what you're saying as far as him throwing the nuts and you know, walk to the nut and then throw another nut. And this whole idea of like their destination is, they say at one point, a hundred meters away. You can see the room that they want to get to, but it takes them an hour to get there. And they have to go in this crazy circuitous route. So circuitous that at one point they come back to where they just were and they don't even realize it. So that might be a trick of the zone, or it might not be. So it's just this kind of weird, like, do you guys even know where you're going? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> Is this guy just winging it <laughs> as he goes? <laughs> well, some people have said that. Some people wonder if the zone is really an invention of the stalker, if there really is something to this or not, because there is a decided lack of the supernatural, the the fantastic inside of here. There are little moments where you're like, oh, well, that's kind of weird. Like when the writer is just like, ah, fuck this. I'm going to go walk right up to the building and somebody cries out for him to stop. I mean, the first time I saw it, I was like, well, that was the stalker's voice. But then the stalker and professor both deny that they said anything. So the writer's like, oh, that must have come from inside of me. Okay, there, you know, I, I got a premonition from the zone. That's about it. I mean, there's just a handful of little things where you're just like, well, that was kind of weird. Like them coming back and finding the professor when they left him behind, but yet they go in this whole big circle and come back to him. <laughs> so very yeah, born again preachery to me. Yeah, like somebody who's kind of a born again and and then suddenly kind of believes, starts believing the bullshit that they've created for themselves. It's a weird film because it kind of challenges where you sit on these things so a part of me i must say i really deep down suspect that it is that it is about not not somebody who's intentionally fooling people i think he believes but uh that maybe there's nothing there you know and this is what we're watching we're watching a story about the journey to getting to there but uh, i think some other people could view the same thing as deeply profoundly you know religious experience again we don't necessarily know what the zone is. I mean, I love that at the beginning of the film, there's a prelude that says, what was it? Did a meteor fall down? Was it a va- Was it a visit by citizens of the vast space? So, or otherwise, in our little country appeared the greatest miracle of miracles, the zone. We sent the troops there immediately. They did not come back. Then we surrounded the zone with police cordons, and I suppose that was the right thing to do. Actually, I don't know. I don't know doesn't really tell us a whole lot of anything so this whole idea of the stalker being able to kind of use this i mean that they call it a miracle of miracles why why is it a miracle is it because of the room inside the zone or was it just that something happened i mean just that they don't even know what was it? What has happened? I mean, as I was watching it and as I was reading the book, I was reminded of the Tuskunga event, which happened in Siberia 
I think it was, what, early part of the 20th century where something happened and people still wonder what exactly happened. I mean, it was it was such a, a strange case that, you know, it became uh, a, a f- key feature of, of, I think, one of the X-Files movies. You know, it's just like, what is this weird thing? You know, I think I saw it on In Search Of and Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Strange World and all these kind of things because it's just like nobody knows why there was an explosion in Siberia and it knocked down all these trees and you could hear for miles and miles around. The blast that occurred in Tunguska was so intense that it knocked people off their feet 200 miles from the blast site. Amazingly, however, there was not one human fatality. Whatever the object was, it struck in Tunguska in the middle of a swamp. What it was, or how it could have caused such massive destruction, remained a mystery. That's kind of what the zone reminds me of, but we're seeing the zone however many years in the book, it's 13. I don't know how many years it's it's taking between when this event of unknown origin happened and when we're seeing it now. But this world is completely different than the world outside of it. I mentioned before that this world is shot in color, in beautiful, beautiful color, and the rest of the world is in this drab, muddy color. So it's this kind of... Of course, the easiest thing to say is it's this Wizard of Oz moment where they go in and they get into this beautiful world, but it seems like this world is just as dangerous. I mean, I guess, you know, trees throwing apples at you is pretty dangerous as well, flying monkeys and whatnot, but this world is just as dangerous, but much more beautiful, much more mystical. So I can see why Stalker would have this kind of religious affinity to it. And I don't think that Wizard of Oz uh, reference is accidental. Honestly, I think it's purple. His first line is, "It's you know, it's good to be home, or I'm back home." As soon as he's in the color space, if it feels you know very similar uh, starting point. I mean, but the weird thing is, unlike Chernobyl, which is another event, obviously that casts a big shadow over the movie. Unlike some of these things that you would assume would destroy the landscape around it, the landscape here is now thriving. Now that man is not part of. And the direct vicinity you know once we've expelled man it's almost like an eden has reemerged with grass and trees and everything kind of uh coming back to how it should be which is so it's 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 kind of um surprising to me in that way yeah i mean i really do think that the zone represents the natural like the like a pure natural world um it's it's the world where everything everything from modern society which is essentially um, to use Stalker's word, words, uh, formed a prison, uh, ceases to exist. And even though it is a prison in itself, it's physically barricaded off. It's actually the only bit of freedom probably left on the entire world. If you're to take, like, take the metaphor to the extreme. And it's this sort of, pu- this sort of purity where, uh, maybe things like religion, old concepts that are dying off, uh, that are dying off in certain ways. Um, cause the Stalker definitely seems like, this like like uh, person who's studying this old like archaic religion um and maybe it's like the one place that something like that can still exist and he also looks a little bit like um if you look at him physically it looks a little bit like you and mcgregor and train spotting and i guess in a way this is kind of a little like bit like a drug experience where he has he's addicted to this trip you know he's addicted to this zone that he has to go back to and it's only on the zone when he's on the zone that he feels you know alive important and home well they say that 
Monkey is disabled uh, because of him being a stalker, because of what he's brought back from the zone. And they don't necessarily say radiation, but that's the easiest thing to say is like, oh, yes, the zone must be irradiated. And so his genes have been affected. His boys aren't shooting straight. And now he's got this little girl who can't use her legs. So you could do that. And there are I mean, this movie predated Chernobyl by a number of years. But it's just uh, amazing to look at this lush landscape and then go and, and look at the um, – there was uh, it was a few years ago. I can't remember exactly when, but there was drone footage of Chernobyl uh, where somebody took a camera through the, the ruins and saw how nature has reclaimed the, the place. And this – Completely. I mean, it's much more dry than the zone. The zone is very wet in a lot of places, especially as they get closer and closer to the room. It just becomes more and more moist. But this uh, whole idea of nature reclaiming the space, which this set was, this was um, set, I put in quotation marks, this location was an old chemical plant that had been basically reclaimed by nature. So it's it was weird to see, to know that to see this Chernobyl stuff. And then of course, for me growing up in Detroit, I mean, there were a lot of places just in my hometown where you couldn't necessarily go that were fenced off that were lush and green and beautiful, but you never knew exactly what was inside of there, why it was being cordoned off. And then to compare the footage of Chernobyl and how that's been reclaimed by nature. And then look at the old Packard plant and how that's been reclaimed by nature here in Detroit. It's kind of scary because, you know, people will talk about how Detroit is this sci-fi landscape. And as I'm watching this, you know, stalker, I'm just like, Oh yeah, yeah. I've seen this before. I mean, we have people that come around here and shoot quote unquote rune porn. And this is rune porn to me. It's almost like if you didn't believe in the religious or alien side of the story, you could almost say that human, humans could put a cordon around any part of their planet and it would come back to life once we weren't in it. <laughs> you know, once we once we once we let it go, it would actually return to how it should be. So it's, it, I feel like that's in there a little bit as a message. Well, I guess likewise, we could say that there's really no conflict in the zone. And it's almost like he says the zone doesn't really even exist until the people get there. And all the people bring, all that the writer, the professor, and Marianne, no, all that the writer, the professor, and the stalker bring are conflict. I mean, especially between writer and stalker, and then later on, the professor and stalker, and they're just constantly, you know, if they're not you know, picking up a, a a rebar and throwing it, you know, from the stalker to writer. I mean, they're having these debates. They're just, you know, the debates aren't necessarily violent, but it ends up being violent towards the end of the film. There's a couple fights and it's just like, okay, it seems like they are the bad element coming into it. I mean, it's so easy for me to say that because it's just, it's true in every case that when people come into a zone, they're going to ruin it. They're going to ruin it for everybody. But in this case, it really feels like just this microcosm of this, these three guys can come in and just cause so much havoc. And the professor really wanted to cause a lot of havoc. You said that there's no real conflict in the, in the zone. And the interesting thing is the only conflict that it could ever exist in the zone, if we were to believe the stalker, is if you don't listen to the zone and you don't follow the zone's rules. So there's this strange idea of, like, this is the one area where when humans fuck with nature, nature fucks back. Joe, you were talking about wanting to discuss 
the way that the stalker interacts with the zone. I'm very curious your thoughts on that. Oh yeah. I mean, so, and maybe I read too much into this because I do know of, I do know a little, not a great deal about Tarkovsky's relationship with religion. I think Alec might know more than I do, but um, I really feel that essentially the, the stalker, the stalker is not a charlatan. He believes the power of the zone, but the zone is the power. The zone's power is unable to be confirmed. And he knows that. And I think that's why he doesn't step in the room. Ultimately, I think they create their own rules because they are, they're trying to stay um, blissfully ignorant to the fact that this wishing machine might not work. But the zone still has a power. I mean, we see the zone has a weird power. The bird disappears in that one shot. The ground sort of moves in an interesting way in another shot. The aforementioned um, no stop uh, scene. So, like, we know that there's a power here, but I think the the power that they're really trying to push is this wishing thing, which might not always work. And I think it's sort of to put it in a very cliche, crass way. It's like that idea of uh, religion works in mysterious ways, um, and it's quite possible that he. That's why he doesn't want his wife to go to the thing because he said, you'll just be, what if you don't, what if you, your wish isn't granted? Or I forget the exact line of dialogue. So I think it's this thing of he wants to believe, so he keeps himself from experiencing anything that could uh, question his faith. And that's the key, yeah, the key word of what Joe's saying, and the key to this whole movie, and the key to Tarkovsky, and the key to religion is faith, is a word of something that can never be confirmed, ever. It's impossible to confirm the existence of these things, but you go for it anyway. You believe it anyway. You take the literal leap of faith, and I, I think it's a pretty powerful idea to play with, and it seems to be what this uh, journey is because I, I definitely sense, like uh, Joe did, that the stalker does believe. He has faith. The problem is, do these people have faith in themselves? Uh, and I think the faith in yourself is about what are your inner desires? Because, uh, you know, this, the room is going to reveal your innermost desire, not the actual uh, thing that you think you're going there for. So it, it might not be to have that great hit novel uh, that he thinks it is. It might open up something that he is actually scared of his own capacity for being human. And and the same goes for uh, the scientist uh, and the stalker himself, I think. I think that's where it becomes a really interesting idea. I think that's where it, it becomes uh, a lot more interesting than just the story of you know God and that kind of faith. It's about these people's belief in self-belief, existential kind of belief. Eventually, we find out that inside of the zone, there is the room. And the room is what you guys just said. It's the place that can grant your innermost wishes but when we get there when we're right near the room we find that the professor has a bomb with him and we know that weapons aren't good i mean the stalker really goes off on the writer when he has a uh, a handgun at one point and kind of makes it into an artifact of the zone after a while when he finally you know the writer puts down the gun and then Stalker kicks it into the water that's there, the ever-present water. I'm curious if the professor really would have gone into the room and used the wishing, or if he was just there to destroy the room and to take it away. Because he says at one point, he's got two conflicting motivations going on. Because one of them, he wants to take away the power of the room. Imagine if there was a room where your deepest desires could come true and someone like a Donald Trump got in there. Just He would come out and he'd have these huge hands, right? <laughs> but <laughs> but let's 
what happens if these little dictators come in and make it into the room? What happens to the rest of the world? So the professor has this desire to destroy the room in order to prevent that. But at the same time, we find out through this very odd moment, and now this is one of those moments of absurd, absurd humor that definitely caused me to laugh, is when the phone rings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're deep in the zone and the phone rings. And, you know, it's like, no, you've got the wrong number or whatever. And the, and the writer hangs up, but then the professor takes it, takes the phone and goes and calls one of his coworkers, this coworker who had slept with his wife before, who cuckolded the professor. And he basically tells the guy, I found the bomb. I'm going to blow up the zone. I'm going to blow up the Arcrene. So is he doing it to get back at this guy? Is that why you know, this incident happened 20 years ago that this guy slept with the professor's wife is he still holding a grudge against that or does he have this altruistic desire to take this power away from somebody that might misuse it so i love that we don't even have a clear answer about that but it feels i mean i, I yeah we don't get a clear answer but i feel like it's the revenge i, th- I think it's and i think that's why he gives up because it is his reason because you're so the idea of something that would see your innermost desire is actually kind of is pretty frightening you know it's very uh, much a black mirror you know that series black mirror i feel like that's the kind of thing it, it often delves into uh or twilight zone you know if you could really see that thing i don't think most of us would want to know what that is uh or trusted and i think he is going there with those uh, with you know kind of hate in his heart you know for this man who's what his life could have been with his wife so i do think that's why he kind of gives up a little easier than if it had been uh for more altruistic reasons and then there's a third possibility, which I think the the whole grudge thing could be sort of a slight metaphor for, or, or since completely separate, is as a, as like sort of a um, manifestation of science himself. Is is it is it this idea that um, science is afraid is somehow tr- trying to destroy religion in some way, or has desire to, or is it is it some sort of commentary on that? I'm not. I don't have it completely worked out, but I think that it's interesting that the that the, the person who is a man of science is the one that's there to blow up the room and not the writer, for instance. If you could walk into a room and it would fulfill your greatest desire, it seems like that would have to be something that isn't necessarily retroactive. Like if it was something that you desired right then and there or, or had desired for your entire life, I don't think that it would necessarily be retroactive and say, like, I really wish I had done this when I was a kid. I think it would be something that would have to take place from there on out. And then with the professor, he's getting kind of long in the tooth. So I don't know what kind of desire he would have had uh, when it came to walking into the room. I don't even know if he came there with a desire or if he really ever planned to walk into the room. Yeah, I don't I don't it's hard to know whether either of these guys wanted to do it or and also I think like the greater question is actually like it, the wish is one thing and yes and that's kind of the way that I think humans relate to it but I think the greater question is the, if the wish is granted that means that there's this power that exists and if we're going to look at the room as sort of um a metaphor for god or for religion or some sort of um unifying spirit that makes them that gives the world meaning do these people want to know for for sure that there is meaning to this world and that, that it's fixed or do they want to remain sort of with that question or also the vice versa versa if it doesn't work 
do they want the, do they want any hope they have could to be completely sh- completely shattered because i mean it does say that this is a place for people who have lost all hope well there's one character that we haven't talked about and it's interesting because he's the character that is only talked about and that is the character of porcupine who we hear about from stalker porcupine was allegedly his mentor and he went into the room and he wished for a great amount of wealth but then a week later he ended up hanging himself it's a great story i love the whole idea of these little moments where even at one point when they make that big circle i was talking about and find the professor again that there's a nut hanging from a tree there and stalker says oh porcupine must have put this here to trick me and it's just like Okay, you know, did did Porcupine ever exist? Was there a really a person that that was Porcupine, or is this just another, I don't know, like a parable or something to to say? Don't go in there. Don't go into the room and wish for material wealth because you just won't be satisfied. I mean, it's a great kind of another mindfuck uh, experiment that this film can set up for us. The writer does comment on Porcupine once himself. He knows a little bit about his story, too. So I, I assume that Porcupine's character does exist. But the question that I, I, ra- I would raise then is, but did he actually did he actually ask for wealth? Or was he just happened to be, was that a mystery? Was that like a thing? Because we don't actually know that he, that, that he, that even this wishing well is something you actually physically asked for something or anything. Um, we're, we're sort of in the, in the dark about that. But the, the one, um, I guess, part of that story that you didn't mention was that he also had his brother killed on his way to, to do that. So there's this weird thing of him sacrificing his brother, finally going into the room and then a week later killing himself. So is it possible that he did get rich overnight, but that wasn't his wish and that his wish was never granted. And therefore he lost his faith and killed himself. It's like that. Um, do you remember that twilight zone episode where if you get the box and you push the button, somebody dies, but you get a million dollars, you don't know the person who dies. And then, but of course the next person who gets that box is going to be you who dies when the mm-hmm. next person, it, it feels like the porcupine story is a little bit like that. Like, uh, you know, very much the be care- careful what you wish for. There, there's going to be consequences if this is real. I only remember the Richard Kelly film of it. Not as good. It could be one of the most dissatisfying movies of all time. I mean, we have this whole idea of these guys going in to find this room, to make this wish, and nobody can go in the room. It is one of those things where you're just like, what the hell did I just watch? It's not for me, but I'm just saying that for some people, they might get really pissed off. You guys went all this way, did all this stuff to get to this room, and you didn't even go inside of it. And then you cut, and all of a sudden, we're back out of the zone. What the hell? I don't understand any of this stuff. I could see where somebody could just take this movie so shallowly i don't know if they'd ever make it to that point i mean we're we're two hours and plus into the movie when we get to the room or outside of the room the vestibule but yeah it's just uh i can see where people would could really uh react badly to this film it'd be like if lord of the rings if they if they walked up and then as they're about to throw the ring into the into the pit they're just like mm, nah and just walked away <laughs> Yeah, it is about uh, expectations, you know, mm-hmm. and and the only difference between this and that Lord of the Rings analogy, which you know, I totally, I totally get, is is that difference of like what you're coming in with, like, okay, it's a, it's a Tarkovsky film, it has all these ideas. So, what kind of journey has this been? Like, is this a physical journey to a room, 
or maybe it starts that way and then it slowly becomes a mental journey, you know, into themselves. And through that, there is a real discovery of something. There is a real discovery of, of, uh, that they actually have a kind of faith. But again, I think that can change depending on who's watching this movie. I think it actually, it would actually be, um, unsatisfying if they did go in the room at a certain point too. I like, I think like Alec was saying, and like I was sort of saying too, that um, if this film is about religion, which I think it's pre- it's quite clearly at least partially about religion, that the that we never know is far more in tune with something I would expect like an art house filmmaker to do than to give us a solid answer on the definitive nature of, of some sort of God presence in our life. I think it stays in tune. Do you think that it, he's saying – He's kind of showing his hand a little bit because even though they don't go into the room, we go into the room in a sense, right? The camera is placed in the room looking back at them at the end, right? The final image, we're physically in the room. Do you think he's trying to give us any tip of how he feels about the presence in that room? That the room is kind of empty except for a couple of fish swimming around? It's one of those things I don't have a reading of. There's that weird black inky kind of stuff that comes in and almost seems to be overtaking those fish. Well, that's uh, from the bomb, right? I would just I just assume that that was like some sort of oil or something secreting from the part of the bomb. But I could be wrong. Maybe I just was way off. Because if the, if you look at the opening, I mean, we use that in terms of film terminology, right? We use the Eye of God camera as a mm-hmm. description, and that would be the opening shot, right? The opening shot is kind of, um, in a way, selecting the stalker. Yeah, it gets panning until we rest on the stalker. It becomes an important figure, and then we end the movie, or at least we end the action part of this movie, in the room looking out at these three men. And it feels in a way, like to me, that we're maybe being positioned with the eye of some greater thing looking at them. But again, totally none of this is set in stone it's completely up to your interpretation but i do think there's there's a really clear choice to place the camera there and look back at these men from that space not from the being withheld outside of the room and I, it's really, one of the few parts i'm not sure about i think you might be right actually because where i really think he actually shows his hand is when monkey has a little telekinetic scene and the only thing about that scene that i struggle with is that shortly after the scene there's the train uh, this train noise and the shaking of the train. Um, and I don't really know what he's trying to say with the train, but maybe that, you know, this is another chance to get into the zone. I don't, I don't, I don't know for a fact, but I think that he really, he shows his hand there because there's clearly now there's an undeniable scene of some sort of supernatural, um, other, like greater than human presence in this world. Yeah, maybe still a little test on your faith. Like he's saying, well, if those who believe now after watching this movie that she's telekinetic, you believe that. But I'm also going to give you the train rattle for those who maybe just can't believe they're going to still fall back on the old. uh, It's the train moving it, you know, Mm -hmm. by giving you both elements. He's still leaving it as a test of faith to the viewer. Yeah, because we saw a glass move in that opening, you know, as the train was rattling the whole apartment we saw this glass moving across the table. So it's a nice bookend to this. And it's nice that we also end in color that when we get monkey at the end, she seems to bring color to things. I mean, she's not, it's, it's desaturated when we see her sleeping. It's desaturated when we see her coming into the bar or outside of the bar with her mother, but then it's full color when she's going back to uh, their place and it's full color when she's reading and then moves the glasses. And that shot of the family 
now with their new dog, this dog that was in the zone, that has come out of the zone, which seems to be one of the few concrete things that has come out of the zone. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the guys could have just been spending the entire afternoon at the bar. You know, we we have them at the bar. If they hadn't left, the wife would be showing up and just being like, what the hell? You guys have just been here drinking all day. But the dog is there. The dog is real. The way that we have them walking across this landscape to back to their place, that to me is one of the most terrifying pictures just to see those huge uh, uh cooling towers from this nuclear plant there and i'm just like yeah that that's not a good thing you know <laughs> if you wonder why monkey is the way that she is it could be that the stalker has been going into the zone for all these years or it could be that you're living right near a fucking uh, nuclear power plant yeah, it's a pretty bleak, uh, bleak shot to, to kind of end. And, and that's funny because I hadn't actually thought about it that Chernobyl came after. So it's a preemptive of that world, which is surprising because it feels very on the nose. <laughs> you know, that one shot feels like the one time it does kind of say scream Chernobyl, uh, which is surprising. But yeah, the ending kind of reminds me of that. bad. What's that bad Scarlett Johansson film where she uses more of her brain? Is it Lucy? <laughs> it reminds me of that. But I think this is how we're. There's a couple of movies actually, like little parts of it. Even like I kept thinking how we're thinking about what's the event that triggers this world. I, th- I was thinking about Arrival a little bit. I don't know if you've seen Arrival yet, but thinking of that as a prequel or something where uh, something has come to Earth and left something behind of significance and then left. And there, you know, it does fit into a tradition. Has like these little connectors to all these different science fiction films with ever fully being, you know, a science fiction film. Should we talk about that monologue that his wife gives? Only if you perform it. It's super powerful. Um, it, and it pro- like I think Elric said that it's like the only scene, or maybe you said that like it's like the only scene with like where we really get a strong sense of characters' emotionals or like emotions, like outside of the these sort of philosophical diatribes are all kind of having the entire film the one cool thing about that scene is it feels to be the one place where you're like you know that the adage that god is love so even those of us maybe who don't believe in a physical god can understand an idea that somehow we're all connected through love i feel like this is one part that's to me quite accessible in these ideas where she's saying like for her you know love was more important a suffering kind of love is more important than just giving in to a bleak, you know, the bleakness of the world or whatever the far kind of final lines are uh, in that. And that strikes me as potentially the key to the movie, you know, what it, what it's really about. But it could just be me. I mean, we could talk about it for hours and hours, but I think we hit most of the big points that I wanted to discuss. I mean, there's things, there's like, I, I find fascinating that they're constantly seeming to be falling in and out of state of consciousness. I mean, I don't think it's necessary to have that conversation like in, in depth, but I mean, if you guys, if either of you guys, if that sparks something, it might be interesting to hear your take on it. It, it I think it's, it, I don't know what it means to the characters, but I think for us, it's part of the, I kind of think he's mesmerizing us, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like his cinema is a cinema of hypnotism and taking you into a certain rhythm, making you feel something different, slowing you down, and then making you feel a little dreamy. Like Mike falling asleep during Solaris would probably make him happy to hear that, <laughs> that he was able to lull you into that state, because maybe we're more open to suggestion in that state. And maybe maybe he can control us a little better in that state. And, and that's ultimately what he is trying to do. He's trying to you know, control us, at, at least on the journey. But I don't know what, what it means to the characters. I, I really don't. It's, it's really interesting. Maybe it, maybe it shows that there is something going on with the zone 
shown that it is a real place that's something it's working on us differently it's it's wired differently but uh i definitely see how it affects me as an audience member that is the strangest part of the movie for me is when they take that little break and the movie even seems to it's like writer and professor are having their own thing stalker goes off and then the way that he kind of moves into that dream state and that the film even switches back to the desaturated moment for a little bit there. And I think that's when we first see the dog. So the first time we see the dog, it's almost more of a, a silhouette, you know, because it is so dark uh, and the color is just gone. It is almost like this shadow more than it is a, a dog. Of course, I was reminded of uh, Sirius Black uh, showing up in the uh, Harry Potter films where it's just like this, you know, if you see the dog three times, you're going to die kind of thing. But it, it just, and they see it twice in the film, you know, the, uh, the way that it comes back later on in the movie. And it seems, the dog seems completely unaffected by the zone. And I was very surprised that the dog is able to travel how it wants to, it seems like, and that we hear so much nature. I would think that in a place like the zone that there wouldn't be birds, but birds are definitely a part of this this area. I mean, so much so that we see the bird in the, the one room, or birds, I should say. And it really kind of gives me hope as far as that nature is able to be part of this world that that animals are able to roam freely and it's that the humans that are the ones that have the problem with it i'm convinced the dog is from the beyond it's going to end badly for the stoker all right so let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and we're going to play an interview with jeff dyer the author of zona a book about a film about a journey to a room and we'll be back with that after these brief messages from, from page to screen, to screen. So they have nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look, but sometimes it works out and turns out even better. Gregor Fisher, his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually, and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas. Now that. <laughs> it's about the acting, about the writing. That's really what theatre is for me. Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. Never mind. There's a joke for the oldies. Um, oh, like, who's Prince? Who's oh. he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys. Going right, okay. So you're a psycho, right? Can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker, and Stitcher, and put in the search box from page to screen. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Projection booth listener. Come real close. I've got a secret just for you. Valentine's Day doesn't have to be the most annoying celebration of the year now. The wonderful gentlemen of the projection booth have made your Valentine's Day as smooth as satin sheets this year. Simply slide right on over to adamandeve.com where there's over 18,000 adult toys, games, sexy lingerie, and an endless amount of DVDs to please even your naughty tastes. And because you're a projection booth listener, you're going to get 50% off just about any item in the entire store. Plus, you're also going to receive a free romance kit. This romance kit includes a toy for him, a special massager for her, and a little something you both can enjoy. And that's not all. You're even going to receive a free adult DVD to put you both in the mood. 
Plus, because the projection booth really wanted this Valentine's Day to be completely pain-free, you're even going to get free shipping on your entire order. So come to adamandeve.com. Get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, and free shipping when you enter the offer code BOOTH at checkout. That's B-O-O-T-H. The projection booth and adamandeve.com. They got your Valentine's Day covered. Wife Jessica, I have an idea. What's that, husband Dustin? As you know, we love movies. Yes, dear, I know. But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right? Without doubt. But whatever would we call it? We are the popcorn Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week, we choose a movie based on a monthly theme, and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie. But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast. On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes. Gotta have the dick jokes. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game. Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way. Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah, okay, fair warning. How did you kind of get your start as a writer? Oh, yeah, well, I left uh, university in 1980, and it was uh, the perfect time to become a writer, really, in that it was a time of mass unemployment, so very little chance of of getting a job, but all the kind of... uh, uh, the safety net put in place by the previous Labour governments, that safety net was still intact. So it was very easy to, uh, you know, to survive quite nicely uh, living on sort of benefits. And there was no stigma attached to it at all in, in, in Britain. It was quite a sort of for people of my generation, it was a kind of perfectly acceptable thing to do. And at, at the same time, newspapers were expanding. You know, there were more and more supplements so there were more and more chances available for freelance writing. So I, unlike the sort of traditional paradigm whereby you sit in your room writing your great masterpiece and send it off, it gets rejected, then you send in another one and eventually your book gets published. My thing was that I gradually became a writer, starting with writing stuff for magazines and then moving on to books. Tell me about the first time that you saw Stalker. I saw it when it was released, uh, on it on its release in Britain, which was, uh, God, I'm struggling to remember now. I'm guessing it would have been about 1981. And it was marketed, if you like, as a science fiction film. And I think for that reason, although uh, I could see it was kind of exceptional, I, I did struggle with it a bit. I found it just a little bit boring, partly because it, it, obviously, it obviously wasn't just a science fiction film. But there was something about it. It just really stayed with me uh, until this one particular day I was walking with my then girlfriend in Richmond Park in in London and a bird flapped down, uh, came flapping over um, the banks of, uh, you know, one of the sort of slopes of of grass in this this park. And it was exact. It was so reminiscent of that moment 
when the bird comes flapping along that tunnel or uh, that great extent of dune, of in, indoor dunes in Stalker. And something about that, something sort of clicked at that point, and I really wanted to see the film again. And I suppose in miniature, that summarizes my entire relationship with the film in that from that moment on, for one reason or another, I was always wanting to see it again. Now, had you explored other Tarkovskys at that point? No, this was my first exposure to Tarkovsky. Uh, I think maybe I was conscious that Mirror had been released be uh, before then. But uh, no, uh, Stalker was my first Tarkovsky. So it sounds like it has stuck with you for a long, long time. Is it still part of you today, or did writing Zona kind of help bring some, I don't want to say closure to that, but it, did it help put things in perspective for you? Well, it certainly did. Uh, it helped me uh, put things in perspective in that uh, my sense of its greatness, which had been deepening over the years anyway, was uh, compounded by, by writing the book. As a result of, uh, of writing the book, you know, I watched the film a lot more and I was able to see how certain effects, certain emotional effects were achieved technically. So you might say that if you are watching a magician, once you see how a trick is done, then the magic is ended. But in this case, actually, that wasn't that didn't happen at all. Um, if anything, I think my sense of the film's greatness was deepened by understanding to a degree how certain effects were, were accomplished. And since then, I mean, two things. One is that um, I've learned more things about the film. And if the book were in a format that permitted me to sort of add bits with each reprint, I would do that. I would add things that I've learned subsequently. Secondly, now, whenever I go to introduce a screening of, uh, of Stalker, which I do quite frequently, you know, I've really seen this film plenty. And I quite often think, oh, well, I'll just stick around for, uh, you know, uh, 20, I'll watch the first 20 minutes and then I'll go to the pub and then I'll come back and, you know, hopefully sell some copies of my books, of my book. But typically what happens is I sit there for 20 minutes and I think, oh, I'll just stay till they get in the zone or something. And, I end up watching the whole thing again. That's quite a feat. I mean, it's not the easiest film to sit through, I suppose. I think the most trouble I had with the film was the first time I saw it, because I think this, I mean, uh, this idea of things being boring, well, it, it's, certainly, it's certainly a slow film. It doesn't move at the rate of the Bourne ultimatum, let's say. It's not like something being slow is what, makes it boring i think things being boring that when we feel bored it's a result of a friction between how we want time to be passing and how it is passing and i think for me what and maybe for other viewers as well what happens is that once you give yourself over to the particular slow rhythm of stalker or any talk or many talk some tarkovsky films for that matter then you just sort of trance out to it and settle into that rhythm and that 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 temporal friction that I've described disappears and you just go along with it. And so I actually find there's only maybe 20 minutes when they're in the zone where, where things sag a bit. Uh, I, increasingly, I find I'm just sort of at one with it. I'm curious when it comes to your subject matter that you choose to write about, how does that occur for you? What? How do you decide what you want to write about? 
Well, I've always tended to write about two things that that, that are one, really, things that I love, um, and then uh, me wanting to understand, you know, why I love something so much or related to that, where I, I love something and, and it's something there's some mystery attached to it. So the most obvious example of that would be would be jazz, which I got into, you know, quite, you know, in my in my mid to late twenties and then in my early thirties wrote this book just trying to understand a bit more about this this amazing music. And there was a lot for me to learn then because my ignorance of the technical side of music is 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 absolute um so there's that it's it's a it's always a question of trying to learn something or the same with my book about photography you know just trying to understand what it is about certain photographers that is so special so there's that it's um it's the books are very much sort of notes about my my hobbies really in the case of the stalker book though that came about in the following way, in that I'd been commissioned to write a book about tennis, which I absolutely loved and continue to love. And I wasn't making any progress with it at all. I just couldn't, just couldn't get going on it. And then, um, as because uh, there was a screening of Stalker at the, at the BFI in London, uh, I, I just started to, in a way, I wrote a little thing in The Guardian about it. And in the course of that article, I hit upon this tone, this quite jokey tone, which on the one hand seemed rather inappropriate as a way of discussing this most revered of film directors. And the tone was just, I just liked the tone. And I found it was, I could use that tone almost to, to summarize the film, if not on a take by take basis, certainly on a scene by scene basis. And it was a way of, by, I mean, by nature of the film, it starts as a literal physical journey and then increasingly becomes more digressive and more of a, a metaphysical journey then the summary very quickly or, or rather in sync with the film the summary took on that digressive or, or metaphysical quality so it became more than more, more than a summary and I was just doing this really as a way of um, displacement activity because writing the tennis book well I wasn't writing the tennis book and I was feeling, you know, at least I was writing something, even though what I was writing was so obviously not going to be a book. And then it, the, the number of words increased. And I was thinking, well, God, it, you know, it, this is book length. But of course, nobody, there's no way I can submit this to a publisher. And then I started to think, well, God, maybe, you know. And to cut a, you, you know, you can see where I'm going with this. Eventually, it was long enough to be a book. And I sent it in to my publisher in lieu of the tennis book. And to my great delight and to their great credit, they, 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 uh, they, the publishers in the US and the UK offered to, offered to publish it. You know, we all have this idea of success. You know, we, there is this idea of success, which is to sell millions of copies. But in a way, for me, this was, I think, my greatest success as a writer because I published this book, which by any normal reckoning was pretty much unpublishable. <laughs> Uh, which is a nice, is a nicely appropriate thing to that in in reference to the film, because of course at the heart of the zone is the room where your deepest wish comes true, and uh, you know, the, uh, yeah, there's a, there's kind of something appropriate about that, I think. I also love your, I don't want to call them digressions, but your footnotes are wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it was a way of. Somebody made a really nice observation in a review of the book. They said, gradually, as the book goes on, 
the footnotes kind of climb over the main body of the text, like vegetation up the walls of a building. And once again, you know, that, that, so that's a metaphor or simile, which quite obviously draws from the film in that there's this, uh, you know, there are these crumbling buildings and quite often what we're seeing is the kind of nature taking over the, the, the man-made. And again, it was a way of, uh, of, of combining a kind of summary of what's going on in the film uh, while addressing some of the issues that the that the film uh, that the film uh, raises, um, and I felt I couldn't uh, do that in any way but the footnotes. And then there was this other thing that because I'd been seeing the film for for so long, then I needed to include some uh, sort of autobiographical elements from my life, both about my experiences and the circumstances in which I saw the film. And also actually going back into my childhood to try to explain to myself, really, why it is that this film in particular affected me so profoundly. Well, that's one of the things that I always ask the co-host on the show is when was the first time you saw this film and what did you think? And just to get those initial memories, because for me, the first time you see a film, you are bringing so much to the film and then... How did that affect you, and how does the film then change you after you see it? Yeah, I think it's one of the things about going to uh, the cinema that um, you come out of a film and you're changed. Uh, your way of seeing the world changes. Now, if you see a, a, a rubbishy film, that feeling of being changed lasts for about maybe just two or three seconds, but we're all familiar with that thing of, you know, let's say you come out of a, uh, a film where, you know, there's sort of scenes set in, I don't know, let's say Las Vegas and there's lots of neon and it's night and you come out, oh, it's still the afternoon. There's that quite, there's that sort of shock. And it seems to me the better the film, the longer that feeling of uh, being altered by what you've seen lasts. And in the case of uh, Stalker, uh, I feel one is permanently changed by seeing it. Uh, the world takes on this Tarkovskian quality. Uh, and also, for me, I mean, when I saw it, which was, I mean, uh, I emphasize this, it was on the, uh, uh, I saw it not as a, um, a revival thing. I saw the film as it, as it was released. And at that point, I'd seen a lot of, you know, I'd seen a lot of, um, you know, classic films. But this was the one that really uh, shaped, it didn't just alter my sense of the world. It also under, uh, shaped my sense of what, what a film could be, what, what movies could, could do. So it was a twofold thing. Thereafter, every film I saw was uh, uh, judged in some way in relation to, uh, to, to, to Stalker, I think. And I think one of the reasons it altered my, it, it altered not just my sense of the world, but simultaneously my sense of cinema is because there's this big question that's asked about the film. You know, what is the zone? Is it this magical place that Stalker claims or is it just uh, an overgrown, an overgrown sort of field? And the thing is, well, we could, you know, we could discuss that for hours. But I think one of the things that we have to agree on is that the journey into the zone is, among other things, a journey into the wonder cinematic space and time. So it seems to me that the film is the film the film is directly addressing that issue of what we experience in a film. Well, I like that you kind of compare it to a road movie at the same time, the whole idea of the journey, the journey almost being more important than the destination, because 
for all intents and purposes, they never really reach that destination. Uh, yes, that's right. They do. Although, I mean, I don't want there to be a spoiler here. Uh, it's always very important in Stalker to look at what the camera is doing. And uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the film yet, take a good, you know, watch very closely about what happens to the, where the camera ends up when they're in the room. I think that's that's extremely significant. But yeah, I think it's it's uh, one of the reasons that the film is not boring in spite of its slow pace is because it is a uh, it is a literal journey. And of course, always when you have a, a physical journey, whether it's uh, on a stagecoach in a western or that boat going up the Mekong River in Apocalypse Now. Uh, you nearly always have a sort of narrative interest there. Uh, it's, it is, a, among other things, it is a literal physical journey that they undertake, a journey that becomes progressively stranger. Through writing, uh, Zona, you have effectively shared your experience of watching Stalker and watching it throughout the years. When you are, I don't want to say in the real world, but in, in your, your physical location, are you someone who wants to take people to see the movie with you or is it more of a solitary experience for you I, I really want people to go to the movie with me more accurately perhaps i want people to go to the movie with each other that is to say i always i'm urging people to see this film but i always say but wait don't watch it on your computer don't watch it on your tv because it really does have to be seen uh on uh, projected on a screen and certainly until recently in, in Britain that was really quite quite difficult because I mean the rights had elapsed and I think there was just one uh, one increasingly fatigued looking print serving the whole of the, the kind of western world anyway the rights have been renegotiated with Moscow I think and the print has been part, part and, the, and, the, and a partial restoration has been undertaken so it's it's easier to see it now but it's really important i think the linking up with something i was saying earlier because the zone is the about the the wondrous cinematic space it's really important to see it i think on a big screen and also one's experience of it uh, of, of the film seeing it in a theater with other people it's very different so i mean one thing that comes out very clearly when you when you're in a a theater is actually the comedy in it even though that's, uh, that sounds a bit counterintuitive when discussing Tarkovsky, but yeah, there's quite a lot of humour, and that uh, that really becomes apparent when you're when when you're in a theatre, and it's also something that uh, to some degree justifies the apparently uh, irreverent tone of some of some of my book. There is that communal experience that we are losing quite a bit through not seeing things at the cinema, and I find that the experience of seeing a film like this. Or even just seeing longer films, not to, to belabor the point about you know Stalker being a, a little bit of a longish film, but to kind of buckle in at a theater, it's so much easier to just pay attention versus when you're sitting in your living room, when you've got the travails of daily life coming in and out. It just seems to make things so much of a richer experience when you're sitting there with the sole purpose of enjoying what's on the screen. I agree, absolutely. And uh, sort of two things in relation to that, for people under the age of whatever it is, I don't know, they assume that, you know, you mention a film uh, or, or anything, a piece of music, and of course, within five seconds, they can be they can be watching it through a series of clicks. And that's that's great in a way. 
On the other hand, back in the day, you know, before this, uh, before before this technology made it possible, you know, we were always scrutinizing listing magazines, and you know, I was always on the lookout for when a given film that I'd not seen before was was being shown, and what that meant is that going to see. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, Stalker, or it could be some other, you know, film from the canon that you'd, you'd missed. You know, it took on some of the qualities of uh, a kind of pilgrimage, or it became, you know, like a little sort of trip to to the to, to the zone itself. And there was something sort of special uh, uh, about that. Although goodness knows, uh, you know, I enjoy being able to. Uh, you know the ease with which I can now see things that that I, that I've missed. I, I certainly enjoy that. Uh, and another thing about you know when we're talking about these sort of uh, you know young people who are used to this kind of thing, I think it's quite interesting their experience of stalker now because you know I really was brought up with the idea that if things seemed a bit boring, then quite often that was a potential sign of their quality, and that extends back even to sort of when I was you know, listening to progressive rock that, you know, the idea was that progressive rock albums would be a bit more difficult to listen to at first than crappy pop music, but they would be, as we used to say, they were growers, you know, the generation now though, where things of the, the speed, the cutting speed of films has, has increased so much. I was fascinated by the way that I, two things would happen. A film like Stalker would seem either inconceivably tedious now, relatively speaking, it proceeds even more slowly now than it did when it, when it was released, or, I mean, it seems to me it, it, it could appear even more magical. And, I mean, I think in a way, when I, when I talk to people who are seeing it for the first time, actually, it, it tends, to be the, tends to be the latter rather than the former, uh, in that, yeah, uh, people are really held, enthralled by its uh, stately pace, let's say. Now, I know you probably aren't researching the demographics of your audience, but I am very curious when you said that you would watch the film and you would be at events where you were selling your book. When it came to those events, were people seeing it for the first time or were they repeat visitors who were fans of the movie almost even more than your book? Really interestingly, it would be a mixture of all sorts, actually. There'd be people who hadn't seen the film before, and then, uh, then at the end, when I'd be signing books, it would be a bit. Let's suppose I. I mean, it's not very a very original thing now, but let's suppose I uh, somebody had written a book about uh, their coming their their, their coming out as uh, you know as, as, as gay or whatever, and the, the book might talk about the first you know first experiences of that, and then after that, you would get people telling you about their experience of that. It was so like that in that you know people would quite often remember very clearly this transformative experience when they came out of the Tarkovsky film for the first time. And it was really, uh, it had a, yeah, it had this transformative, almost like a conversion story. And people would remember very, you know, really, really clearly when they saw it for the, for the first time. So there'd be a, a, a mixture of people seeing it, uh, you know, never seen it before. And, uh, uh, people like me, that is to say, repeat offenders. This is an obnoxious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How long did it take to write Zona? I think it didn't take very long at all. And the reason for that is typically with writing books, I spend so much time umming and ahhing and not getting around to it. 
Whereas, fortunately for me, because I wasn't meant to be writing it and because I accidentally hit on the tone of it quite early on, I think it was, it, it probably only took nine, I can't remember exactly, but about nine months. I mean, I should add also that it's a, it's a, it's a short book and there were no major, uh, there were no major structural issues to, to sort out because I was just summarizing it from the first shot to the last. Now, I know um, you used to write for newspapers, magazines. Is that still a viable option for you these days? Oh, yeah, I still do that. I mean, not as much as I did, partly because I did so much of it uh, until until relatively uh, recently. But the, the two things of book writing and writing for papers have always gone hand in hand. And, you know, this book began really with... Um, me writing this short piece in the Guardian, you know, then just sort of continued writing that piece to, uh, you know, expanding it to a to a book length thing. But uh, yeah, I do I do write less for magazines and newspapers now than than I used to. Well, I imagine part of that is because you are a successful book writer. But I was curious if just the markets had dried up because there are so few newspapers and magazines left these days. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, you know there was a time you know when, as I say, during the, the 1980s and 90s, you know they were they were getting fatter and fatter. The you know the uh, newspapers there was just more and more more and more stuff. There's less space, but it really. It, I mean, I don't want to stand this. I really don't want this to be taken wrong. But I, I think I, I would. There have been op- there's plenty of opportunities for me to 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 uh, write still. But it's just uh, I think I've just felt less in, less inclined to do it. Partly because if you're writing for British papers, then quite often people will phone somebody will phone you and they'll say, Oh yeah, would you like? You know, we got this idea. And you, you know, I say, Yeah, I'd quite like to do that. And they say, Great. Can we have it by five o'clock tomorrow? And, you know, I, I am capable of doing that, but I do find that, uh, you know, that real, um, that, that kind of, I find that quite stressful, that kind of breakneck deadline. Did you ever write the book about tennis? No, that's, uh, I mean, if, I mean, I discuss in the book, whether in, in the Tarkovsky book, whether that one's deepest desire is quite often uh, a mirror image of one's deepest regret. And I'm very conscious that I haven't written the, the, the book about tennis and I, I'm still as interested in tennis uh, as, I, as I was then. But I just wonder if that was, you know, I, I can't quite, I, I'm not sure whether the bus, you know, that, that bus certainly um, uh, passed me by because I was busy, I ended up writing the Tarkovsky book. And I'm not sure whether that uh, another version of that bus will come by again. That's still, that's, that, that's not been decided one way or the other yet. What are you working on now? Um, you know, I've just finished a little book about um, the photographer Gary Winogrand, um, a short book. And uh, that's something not dissimilar in a way to the Tarkovsky book in that, you know, I wrote a bit about Winogrand in uh, the photography book, The, Un- the Ongoing Moment. But, um, you know, I was always wanting to see more of his pictures. And now, um, now I've really seen, a, 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 you know, there's a lot of Winogrand to see. And I've seen quite a bit more. But, yeah, my just as my sense of the magic and wonder of uh, Stalker was not uh, diminished by finishing the book. So my sense of, uh, of Winogrand being of, of inexhaustible is, is uh, that's un- uncompromised by having written this book. I do have to tell you that I really appreciate that sense of wonder that you brought to Zona and to your other work where it just, you motivate 
people, at least that's my impression, and you, you definitely helped open my eyes to appreciate things a lot more than just seeing it at first blush. So I very much appreciate the way that you bring that to your work. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm very happy that uh, you use that particular phrase, open, you know, that I opened your eyes, because in this way that I like there to be as intimate a connection as possible between the books and what they're about. There's that wonderful moment when Stalker is talking about Porcupine, his teacher, who explained to him about the zone. He said he opened my eyes. So, uh, yeah, thank you for the, uh, the appropriateness of that compliment. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful. Oh, absolutely, Mike. Thank you. Great talking with you. And we were talking about Stalker. So did either of you guys have a chance to read Roadside Picnic? I did not. If you want, I'll tell you a little bit about Roadside Picnic. Oh, yeah, I'll love yeah. <laughs> <laughs> both waited for each other both times. And then... All I know is that as soon as you, wrote, you, you tweeted or posted that Robert Forster <laughs> narrated it, and I got really excited about the idea of that. It's a great, great narration, and he does a terrific job of it. And it's kind of funny because he's got that New York accent, and he's even though it's set in America, there are a lot of foreign-ish sounding names. So I'm I'm guessing these are supposed to be like renowned Soviet scientists that are working in the United States. Uh, like there's a, a Professor Kirill and stuff. The book is divided into four main sections, and we're really following the life of Red, who is our stalker. And Red is completely the opposite of what the stalker in the movie is. He is a criminal, uh, a known criminal. He's made his living off of going into the zone, and really there's this whole idea of you go into the zone in order to poach, and there's a whole network of poachers that are going in and stealing materials from the zone because the zone was left by an alien invasion, and they actually say in the opening that there were six spots on the Earth where these alien invasions happen, and we're just dealing with one. And you go in there and you find these, uh, they have like batteries that are perpetually giving energy. They have these plasma whatevers. It just, they're all these alien artifacts that nobody really understands exactly what they are, what exactly they're for, exactly how they work. Some of them are incredibly dangerous and some of them are helpful. So obviously a battery that lasts forever is very helpful, but they know at the same time that these necessarily aren't 
what they think they are. They're like, okay, we know that this battery gives us energy forever. We don't know if it's part of another machine, if it does this, that, or the other thing. We don't know why it gives us energy forever, and maybe one of these days we'll figure that out. The whole idea of the title of Roadside Picnic comes from a story that one scientist is is kind of throwing around with this other guy who is... um, works at this institute that is outside of the zone that's supposed to uh, protect the zone. And they describe it as, what if this area, what if this invasion was just a bunch of kids from another world coming in and all of these things, all these wondrous tools that they're finding inside of the zone are just, you know, wrappers from candy bars or, or empty pop bottles or these kind of things, all the junk that gets left behind when you have a party in the woods. It's a very, very fascinating book. It lasts about, the audio recording lasts about six hours, and um, it's available on Audible, and I really recommend it. I mean, that story is, again, completely different than what we see in Stalker. I would love to see a version of that that holds more to what the Strugowskis were writing, but... um, at least we have the book. It's one of those things where the book and the movie are completely different, but they both stand on their own as being really great. So it's it's funny that there are just a couple things like the word stalker and zone and a couple other echoes here and there, the whole idea of the nuts being thrown. But with the, when the nuts are being thrown in the book, they're being thrown so that he can determine if there are these gravity traps. There are all these really great traps that are around all of these horrible things that will kill people and maim people. And you would think in a normal movie, normal in quotes, that one of the guys, they would have had a fourth guy go with them who would have bit it within the first 10 minutes inside of the zone to really show us how dangerous it is. And that's kind of what it is in the book is like waiting for the person to die. And, you know, and you hear all these stories about people who have died. You see, you know, we see the bones of people in the, the Jeep and we see the two skeletons outside of the room. So we know that there's some danger there. But in Roadside Picnic, you actually get to see people, you know, with their legs being burned off by, you know, this outer otherworldly slime and this kind of stuff. Hell slime, they call it. So it's... um it shows I would definitely his, uh, recommend disdain that. for genre. Yes. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Like it's, it's, he's just looking for a scenario to get the three people to question existence. You know, on a trip. It, it, you know, and they just happen to use genre for that uh, purpose. Well, it's funny because when I was watching that documentary about um, Rareberg, the first of three cinematographers who w- worked on Stalker. They were talking about the original scenario that um, Tarkovsky was working with the Strugatskys on, and they're talking about it was originally called Wishing Machine, and they're talking about uh, a character named Vulture who was in the book, and it sounds like Vulture was basically going to be read because he was this kind of more of a mercenary character who's trying to make money by you know going in, and they have all these underground criminal networks, and I was like, okay, this is much closer to what the book was. But as they went along, and then the other thing that that didn't help is that they shot this movie basically three times in a row. So they managed to change quite a bit of stuff as they're going through it. 
Yeah, some of the some of the stories sounded more like Escape from New York or something, like a Snake Plissken type character in, in one of the versions he uh, was trying to make. But uh, yeah, it's kind of there's a lot of sad stories about you know the film stock failing. Um, but there was there was a story I'd read a long time ago which wasn't in that in that film, and I wonder if it's this film or if it's a different one. I'm pretty sure it's Stalker, where he told a story. He got in a taxi and he had obviously uh, hand typed the script and he was t- taking it to Moss film uh, and it was in the back of a taxi and he got out of the taxi and left the script in there. <laughs> and at the end of the day, so he, he had a total meltdown when he realized the only copy of existence was now gone, lost forever. And at the end of the day, he is walking along a street and this is like in Moscow. So it's, you know, busy metropolis, uh, a taxi pulls up and the guy just hands him the script and, and, and he was, articulating his belief in God and faith through, partially through that analogy of just that that could happen. And I remember, I'm pretty sure it was Stalker and it wasn't mentioned that, but I'm sure it's in his diaries or something. And it was one of those stories where you're like, oh, wow, that's pretty, pretty incredible. Given how much bad luck he also had <laughs> in the production. Like I was listening to um, the Matthew Modine story about Full Metal Jacket. And one of the things about Kubrick sounded like uh, one of the games he would play with the studio blame the actors for the delays. And he said it was the actors who were causing all the problems and he had to fight through it. And it was all just total bullshit. You know, it was completely Kubrick trying to delay things so he had more time to do the things he wanted to try at the pace. And And I think I started seeing some similarities with uh, Tarkovsky in this documentary where one of the things they said is he hated making decisions. You know, and it's funny because that's what directing is ultimately. It's making decisions. Uh, and I feel like that, that Kubrick was probably doing the same. They, they are going for something. And I don't think it makes them not as superior directors. I think it's like they're going for something, a feeling, and they're going to keep going until they get it. But that doesn't fit in with normal production, like what a, the, the time allotted to making a film. And so they have to blame other people and find scapegoats on their productions so as to keep going. And it, it seems like these multiple – I know one of the accusations was one of the versions failed for Tarkovsky, and people were saying he, he probably willed it to fail just so he – because he was still working out what the hell he wanted the movie to really be about, you know? And it, and so it's really just fascinating that these kind of filmmakers that seem to make these big, these films at last, uh, incredible uh, cinematic visions, but perhaps they uh, did, weren't as in command in the moment as people often might think they were. The whole production just seemed to be very hellish. And then one of the interesting things that I heard about it, and I forget where I read this, but was that um, because this was a basic in the chemical plant a lot of the water was really contaminated and it ended up being that a lot of people from the production died of cancer like a like a a, a surprising amount of people who worked on this film died in can- died of cancer and like i think there was Definitely speculation the three biggest. yeah the there was speculation that they may have gotten also like a lot of like chemical um poison like 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 swinging it could just be one of those random things i mean a lot of people do die of cancer but i know that at least one of the sources I read had 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 questioned whether having them kind of in these in these like probably most likely contaminated waters had anything to do with that. Like Genghis Khan with John Wayne and everything. Exactly. Yeah, the Conqueror. Yeah, it totally reminded me of that, where they're using the sand that was from uh, near one of the nuclear test sites out there's west. There's a there's a horrifyingly, but it's also a really beautiful film 
by Chris Marker, who made yeah Lajete and um, uh, Night and Fog, and it's the la- I think it's the Day in Life of Andre uh, Arisnovich or something, but it's about it's Tarkovsky's basically last few days of life as he's dying of cancer, and and Marker just kind of documents him in those moments. And when I, I didn't know about this story until researching, you know, us doing the Stalker. Uh, show, but it, when when I thought about that documentary, it made it all the more heartbreaking to think that, and and it makes sense, you know, especially with Tarkovsky, that it would be connected to his art because he really suffered. I mean, he really suffered for his art. What in his life, he was always on the out. He was never the financial success. He was always just scraping to make that next film. And yet, other directors th- thought of him as the pinnacle. You know, Bergman thought he was the best director. He was the one who finally unlocked what cinema could be. And I I think that's it's it's very interesting well he was definitely one tarkovsky was definitely one to name drop brasson and uh antonioni so much he just wanted to make these films that could stand as art like antonioni and brasson's films which is quite an admirable uh thing to do i mean he really knew that cinema was an art and really showed that it was an art and you know stuff like the mirror and stuff like solaris even though you know i I haven't been able to see all of it but i do know that what i've seen is gorgeous to look at so he yeah he definitely uh was died for uh what he what he and they're all pushing all those directors and add kurosawa in there and they're all at the same time they're all making films in the exact same period and they're all seeing what the other people on other sides of the globe are doing they're all it feels like film was still forming what it could be a cinema as an art form uh, how we could understand movies and then obviously it you know with the birth of jaws and and star wars and everything that changes radically and and kind of stop the exploration to an extent maybe uh stagnates again kind of like the birth of sound but but it's it's really interesting when they're all inspiring and almost almost creating being competitive in art house filmmaking (laughs) you know what i mean it's not something we see really now we see great still great art house films occasionally but not in that way where it feels like they are all trying to see who can push it the furthest and you know discover what it what it what it can be well, it's 1979 that this movie comes out, and it took quite a few years for them to make it. Like I said, they shot it three times, essentially. I mean, there are, are pieces in the final product that were from those days when the first cinematographer, when Rareberg was working on this. But in essence, they had to do it these well, had to. They chose to do it these three times. One, yes, they were blaming the, the camera stock on it, that it wasn't proper. Then they had another cinematographer come in, and I think they said he shot 1,500 feet of film or something. And then a third cinematographer came in, and they basically started over again. And just those kind of stories, the timeline of when this movie comes out, I mean, and even the whole idea of this journey up the creek without a paddle, of course, I'm thinking of Apocalypse Now the whole time that I'm I'm hearing these stories of the making of the film. And it just, it's uh, fascinating to me that both of them come out right around the same time and both of them were just plagued with so many production problems. I don't, Heaven's Gate was the next year, but, uh, and I wouldn't necessarily put that one in the same class as this because... I don't really go back to Heaven's Gate and rewatch it, but I do rewatch Apocalypse Now, and I f- will find myself rewatching Stalker. So, but just those ideas of these two filmmakers both going through hell to make these movies. I mean, the, we had uh, they were scouting out areas for the zone over in Tajikistan, and there's this massive earthquake, and all of a sudden they can't film there anymore because 
it's just like uh, where they wanted to film ended up being this toxic zone, I guess even more toxic than the chemical plant, you know, shooting it over and over again, not necessarily knowing where the script is going. I mean, the, the script is changing like crazy as they're going through there, and he still doesn't necessarily know what he wants to do with the end of this. I mean, there's so many parallels between the making of the two films. It's pretty fascinating to me. Especially when it comes out so perfectly. Like, so it's so simple <laughs> and feels so perfectly constructed. You wouldn't know that this is the third draft or that parts were from one draft. And it just, it's so seamless. It's precise in that sense. It's, it's pretty remarkable. It really is amazing how some of film's greatest accomplishments are the result of so much pain and so much suffering based on the, on the filmmakers just getting it made. To hear all the behind-the-scenes stories in the one documentary, The Other Side of Stalker, and just how Tarkovsky's wife was such a pain in the ass and wanted to be that wife character of the stalker and Rareberg and sounds like some other people on the set were just like, no, 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 she shouldn't be doing that, and how great the actress was that ended up being that character. But it sounds like as soon as that slight happened, then Larissa Tarkovsky was get rid of this guy and just completely against him and wanted Rareberg off of the the uh, the project, and then Tarkovsky sounded like he was so petty about stuff and was even talking about you know Rareberg's never going to work in this town again, basically. And Rareberg ends up being a commercial cinematographer, working with these guys where they're just like, "What? We can get Rareberg to work on our commercials? This is crazy!" And he really couldn't find work again. He was taken off of the film. So some of these beautiful shots, his name is nowhere on the movie anymore. He was just completely, you know. Somebody said that that Tarkovsky was like Stalin. He just removed him from the records. You know, he's not a part of Stalker at all. But if you go back and you look at the mirror, yes, you can see what a beautiful relationship or what beautiful art i should say came out of that relationship between those two guys yeah that line where where he apparently said uh, you you think you're the genius there can only be one genius i mean it's it does seem petty but i think a lot of great artists have um we don't want to know necessarily but a lot of them did it reminds me of my favorite uh and this is another kubrick analogy but i do think there's a lot of similarities but uh i always think of kubrick as this you know incredibly deep thinking guy but there was a story but one of his uh, sound guys told once where he was uh he, he was really in awe of kubrick and kubrick was across the room uh and he kind of he was using the sound to hear what kubrick was saying and kubrick just leaned into this guy and they were in a deep conversation he was like oh, i wonder what they're talking about and you just hear kubrick saying uh, check out the tits on the blonde and when he and when he heard that, it completely humanized them forever. You know, suddenly Kubrick's just a man, like every other man, you know, and I always thought that was a great story. <laughs> the only thing we didn't talk about, and I, I know it's going to be in your, might be in your dire uh, interview, but was uh, Zizek, who, you know, did the, um, those great documentaries about uh, the Pervert's Guide to Cinema. I remember his big thing was like comparing, and this isn't saying that I read when I watched the movie, but now in retrospect, I can't get it out of my head, but is that comparison uh, that the zone's a place to go, you know, to experience innermost desire. And so effectively, it is the cinema, that they are going to the cinema. It is a journey. You have to suspend your disbelief when you go to the cinema. And these characters have to suspend their disbelief, uh, you know, on this journey to the screen. And that you can't actually enter the screen when you get there, but you can bear witness to it so it, it was one of it's just one of those analogies that i really liked and i bet next time i watch the movie it will probably kind of invade how i see the movie a little bit shamefully i have not watched another documentary which 
takes a lot from um, Stalker, which is Adam Curtis's hypernormalization. I haven't watched that one yet, but apparently he uses Stalker as kind of a, a, a much more of a metaphor for Russia and how uh, things work inside of Russia. I can definitely see, by the way, the whole idea of the going into the room where your deepest desires can come true definitely being a, a metaphor for the cinema that seems uh, like a pretty well i know uh, zizak is a lacanian um and so that it totally reminds me of that that whole idea of regression regression and almost being back in the womb kind of thing so i can really see where he's coming from well, it's great that. because it's a movie that gives you a lot of space to project into and and not not all movies do that i think a lot of movies are pretty defined in exactly what they mean or you know obviously people like lynch uh, leave some nice ambiguity for you to but this really I think you can bend this to be uh, to fit what you want it to fit. I think you could write very, very different, radically different essays about the meaning of this film by taking a firm position and then just kind of bending it to, uh, to its will. And it might not be what Tarkovsky intended, but I think because of how open it is, uh, it, it lends itself to that. Well, and it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, you know, we heard from Jeff Dyer earlier on, and we didn't really talk about his work, but his book Zona. I mean, it's a writer going through and you know, I'm a big fan of close readings of films and this is one of those close, close readings of a movie. He's basically pulling apart the entire thing, but also at the same time making it this personal journey for him where we have all these footnotes in there and he's talking about you know, different moments in his life and how he, you know, has viewed other things. I mean, it's that whole thing of like, you know, we, we've all, dropped other films and other events and other things as we're watching this. And that to me is one of the great things that a piece of art like this can do is that it can permeate our lives so much so that we're constantly seeing references, whether to the film or other things that remind us of the film. So it's, it's, uh, and that he was able to successfully, very successfully, in my opinion, go on for a little over 200 pages, kind of pulling this film apart, talking about the movie and uh, talking about his life and just how much this movie means to him i mean that's pretty great i mean it, it's tough for a lot of people when it comes to like you know hey what'd you think of that movie oh yeah it was good you know it, it, and even if you are enamored with the film yeah maybe you know write a couple hundred words on something but for him to sit down and write an entire book about stalker and how he you know the journey through the film for him and kind of how he comes out on the other side just a remarkable work and just a real compliment to stalker and to him that he was able to do this i have a, a few tiny quibbles with that book but mostly i just find it it really impressive i mean his close reading is remarkable it's really shocking that he is not a film like a full-time film critic or full-time film, film writer um but he brings such a refreshing look, I think, at film criticism. And then a lot of his like personal anecdotes are super funny or fun or super or just like really like relatable in a lot of ways. Like it's a total film lover's book. I think anyone who likes this movie should absolutely read the book. And I think they'll get a lot out of it. Yeah, the part I, I haven't read the book. I had read like excerpts of it online, and the part that I loved in in the interview with him that you conducted is when he says, uh, 
that you know he'll take people to this movie thinking he's going to stay for five ten minutes. I'll just watch the opening, and then he stays for the entire movie every time. Mm-hmm. It it really the only movie I have in my life like that is always been The Shining. You know, since I was a kid, if it plays on TV and I'm it's halfway in, I sit down and somehow I watch it, never intending to watch it. It just is one of those things, and you still can't. No matter how many times I see it, I've never been able to pinpoint what it was about that movie that kept pulling you back. So I'm impressed he was able to get it down on paper. For me, it's Black Shampoo. But it is, it, Black Shampoo isn't one of those that plays on television too often, so, like, ever. So I would say in that case, it's usually Jaws. If Jaws is on, whether it's five minutes from the end or five minutes from the beginning, I will watch it all the way through, which would probably cause Tarkovsky to have a heart attack. And the one thing that was the most shocking thing to me about Dyer's book is that he said he still hasn't seen The Wizard of Oz. Wow. Yeah. I don't. Re- I didn't remember that, but that yeah, that's, that is kind of. It's like it's hard to imagine going through life without having to accidentally see see that movie. Well, the more I'm out in the world, the more I find that people haven't seen some of the stuff that you would just kind of like take for granted, like Star Wars. <laughs> it's just like really you haven't seen oh no no i've never gotten around to it yeah it's crazy well i think part of that is uh the way we watch everything streaming so if it's not streaming young people might never see it <laughs> if it's you know if it's not available just to stream on netflix they might never actually watch that movie that's the crazy thing all right we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show is this being recorded yeah my name lou andrew is not Lou. Really. I didn't know that. Did, did you? I know I am not perfect. Perfect, huh? You're absolutely perfect. <laughs> that's it. That's great. <laughs> that's it. Hold it, now hold it. Now let me loose it. That's it. You know, like that. Now, you're gonna make it, baby. Brilliant. That's how I was. Divine. Absolutely divine. Face is bone and stark as found. Enormous eyes. What a dream this is. What I wanted. And how I hate it. Can you explain that? That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Puzzle of a Downfall Child. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-host, Elric and Joe. So, Elric, where can people hear more of your dulcet tones? My dulcet tones. Uh, I do a podcast uh, with the folks uh, at Blumhouse called Shockwaves. Uh, it's a horror podcast uh, where we're doing our show every week, and we do an interview with uh, people in the industry and talk about movies. And um, I'm actually starting a smaller side project. Uh, it'll be a little shorter form, but just to talk more about broad movies uh, with um, Brian Sauer from Rupert Pupkin Speaks, the uh, a really great blog where he does film discoveries and stuff. And we're just going to kind of get together uh, once a week with a short form and kind of just discover, discuss lists and films that we love and, you know, just try to try to talk about things outside of just horror. Brian likes his lists. He likes his lists. So we're going to, we're going to make that into something. It won't be in depth like uh, the projection booth. It'll be more like the opposite, very light and giving you lots of recommendations and double features and stuff like that. And that's going to be called pure cinema podcast. 
And Joe, how about you? What is keeping you busy these days? So life is keeping me too busy, but I do, do also do a podcast with my buddy James McCormick. Um, used to be a cinema awesome called Small Screen Cinema, which is all made for TV movies. Some people might remember Mike coming on to do Columbo, uh, which was a great time. Um, we we have been sort of – it's purely my fault. We've been a little bit um, lacking in posting lately, but I'm going to get – we're going to get back in the group of things and start uh, getting back to a more regular schedule, uh, starting with Decalogue. Love Decalogue. I will tell you that your podcast was the inspiration for the Kolchak tapes, because when you asked me what movies to talk about on your show, and I said either Columbo or Kolchak, and we went with Columbo, which I love, and hopefully my love for Columbo comes out in that episode, but I said, I still want to talk about Kolchak, and I couldn't believe nobody had done a Kolchak podcast before. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a great idea. I haven't, I haven't, um, you launched the first episode already, right? I haven't had a chance to listen to, yeah, I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but I'm definitely going to start catching up on that soon. Well, just one so far. It's going to only be one a month because uh, there's no way in hell I can do more. <laughs> no, that's, that's great for me. That makes it easier to catch up. <laughs> I don't know how you do it all anyway, Mike. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So many books you read every, every uh, week for these movies. Well, thanks again, guys, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. You can download Small Screen Cinema. You can download Shockwaves. Hopefully soon you'll be able to download Elric's new venture. And you'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can donate to the show. Every donation, every rating, and every review help the Projection Booth take over the world.
splendid sparkling fire When suddenly you raise them so To cast a swift embracing glance Like lightning flashing in the sky But there's a charm that is greater still When my love's eyes alone And through the down a cast lashes, I see the dull flame of desire. And through the down cast lashes, I see the dull flame of desire. Sparkling 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.